kind of a message. It's one that I've never heard before. It's one I've never given before. A different kind of an introduction because we're in a different place. You have a different preacher up here, up front. A little different report from Qatar than we thought we were going to have today. And so we're going to go on a trip. Uh, it's more of a mental trip. It's an imaginary journey, if you will, uh, with me back in time to John's 80th birthday. I preached, last time I preached on Psalm, Psalm 91, but this time we're back in John. I can't get too far away from him because I really love uh, the book of John. There's so much that we can learn from it. And in this imaginary journey, I want you to, to think that uh, if we could go back in time today to John's 80th birthday, what would he say? And so you can just follow me along in my sanctified imagination, just put up with me, if you will, for a little bit because... Uh, you don't even have to have your Bibles open for a minute. In fact, I'd ask you just to close your Bibles. I'll tell you when we can open your Bibles, because we'll be getting into the Word of God in a few minutes. But on this introduction, I want you to imagine that we go back in time, and, and so I would be Mark introducing Grace Community Church to John the Apostle on his 80th birthday. And uh, John is really glad, uh, we're really glad to be here today. Uh, we brought the whole church with us today, and uh, we'd like to hear a little bit about who you are and what you've been doing recently. And so now I'll turn it over to John. So now John will get the, the mic at this point. And he would say something like, well, it's, it's, really, uh, it's really nice to be able to talk to this church, Grace Community Church. And before I get started, I just want to say uh, that is a great name for a church because uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, his whole life was full of grace. And he taught us a lot about grace in the three and a half years that I was with him as one of the apostles. And I'll tell you a little bit about myself. But first, I want to tell you that I've been preaching in Ephesus uh, a church that Paul founded years ago. And it's interesting, lately a lot of people have been coming from far and wide to hear me preach. Some come from as far as Philippi and, and Corinth and Rome and even as far as Ethiopia. And they want to hear my words, they want to ask me questions, and I'll tell you why in a few minutes why. But first I'll tell you a little bit about myself. I'm one of the two sons of Zebedee, my older brother James and I. We were fishermen by trade. Um, our father taught us how to fish there in the Sea of Galilee, and we were zealous men, men for God. We were, if you, you might call us, we were brash, we were a little bit uh, self-centered, we were hot-headed sometimes. In fact, at one point in our ministry, we were called sons of thunder because, well, we wanted to have things our way. One time when we were with, with Christ, uh, we were, we were uh, moving from Jerusalem, or we were going down to Jerusalem from Galilee, and on the way down, the Samaritans blocked our way. They wouldn't allow us to go through their town. Well, we suggested gently to the Lord that we could just bring down fire out of heaven and just burn them all up, but we thought that would be a great idea, but the Lord, he had um, better intentions, and he taught us a lot about grace. I remember another time with the Samaritans, we were going north this time to Galilee, and we stopped outside of a little town of Sychar. And there, we left the Lord, tired as he was, from his journey by the well, and we journeyed into Sychar, and the 12 of us. Side by side, I remember as we walked up that pathway, there was a woman coming down in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, and we thought it odd because normally the women, they, they came later in the day, and they came as a group when it was cooler. But this woman, she was by herself. We snickered to ourselves, and we thought she was probably of a bad reputation, this woman this woman of Samaria, and so she wouldn't associate herself with the other women. Well, we went into town, and we bought that food that we had gone to, and we, 
we thought it funny that when she was coming our way, we stood our ground because we weren't going to get out of the way for this Samaritan woman. She was probably a low life among the Samaritans, and we were Jews. We were proud of our heritage, and so she went around us. It surprised us when we came back to the well, and the Lord was actually having a conversation with this woman. He was speaking to her. We would never have spoken to a woman, not a Samaritan woman. And not only that, but he was willing to actually drink from her water pot. That would be like drinking from a leper's water pot. And not only did he hear her words and talk to her, but he knew everything about her. He said, go call your husband. She said, I don't have a husband. He said, you have spoken truthfully, for you've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. He knew all about her, and yet, in spite of that, he offered her living water. He said, if he, you knew who you were talking to right now, you would ask of him, and he would give you living water. He would give you eternal life if you but ask. Well, that woman did receive the Messiah that day. And not only that, but she went into the town and shamed us all, for she brought the whole town out. She went in and said, come see a man who knows everything about me. And it's as if she had said, and he didn't condemn me. He didn't judge me. Instead, he offered himself to me. And they came out. And they all got saved that day, as well as her, shaming us all. Well, the Lord taught us a lot about grace and a lot about love. And James and I, as I said, we were rather hot-headed. We were tired of the way things were back then. We didn't like the Romans. They had us under such bondage, taxing us to death every day. They looked down their nose to us because we were not Roman citizens. We were Jews, but we were proud of our heritage. But we didn't think much about the Jewish leadership. There were the Pharisees, and they had added some 600 laws to God's law. And they looked down their nose on all the common people because they judged us by their false laws that they had added to God's law. So many laws about the Sabbath. God had set up a separation of the Jews from the rest of the world to set them apart. And he had given the Sabbath law to make the Sabbath holy that we would not work for commerce, for money. You were not to go in and out of the gates of the city carrying a load upon your back to do financial things on the Sabbath. It would set us apart from the rest of the people, but they had added law after law after law to God's law. Stupid laws about how wearing jewelry on the Sabbath, that would be carrying a load, or doing some kind of task that would be so simple. You couldn't eat an egg hatched by a chicken on the Sabbath because that chicken had done work on the Sabbath. What a ridiculous thing. We did not think much of our leaders. And then, well, the, the, the high priest and the priesthood in the temple. Well, James and I, we had a bet about the lamb. Every year there was Passover, and you were to bring a lamb to the Passover to be sacrificed on the part of your family. You would put your hands upon that lamb, and it would symbolically transfer your sin to this lamb who would cover over your sin when it was sacrificed. Well, every year, James and I, we would 
scour the hillsides of Galilee looking for a perfect lamb, a perfect lamb that we could bring for sacrifice. We would bring it to temple at Passover and present it to the priests for sacrifice. And every year we lost the bet. Every year he would find some flaw on that lamb, a blemish, a freckle, something chipped in the hoof, and so that lamb would be rejected. But certainly we could purchase one of the lambs in the pens there in the temple for 10 times the marked up price. They were the pre-approved lambs, and so we would buy one of them and use one of them. Well, something had to change. We knew something had to change, and we heard there was a man preaching that Messiah was coming, and that we needed to get our hearts right for this Messiah. We knew that when Messiah come, things would change. And so we talked to our father and we said, we're going to go down to Judea there along the Jordan and hear this one, this one that some have said is a prophet. And so we traveled down and met John the Baptist. Well, he was a different sort of man. He had taken a Nazarite vow and he didn't cut his hair. He didn't shave his beard. And he preached there in the wilderness. He wore animal skins and he talked about the fact that we needed to repent, that we needed to turn from our ways, that we weren't just going to heaven because we were Jews and it was our heritage to go to, Jew, to heaven. No, we needed to get right, to get ready to receive the coming of the Lord. And he said he was coming soon. He said he was not worthy to even untie his sandals, this prophet of God. And so we listened to him. And we followed him, and we were baptized there in the River Jordan, and we were preparing for the coming of Messiah. There had to be a change. And then one day he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And he said, Follow him. And so we left John the Baptist, and we followed this one. I remember as we came there to Jesus, he turned around and said, What do you want? And I stammered, Where are you staying? As if to say, we want to go where you're staying. We want to go where you're going. We want to hear you, Lord. And he smiled and said, come and see. And so we followed him. For the next three and a half years, our lives would be so different, so changed, because of the life that he showed us. Well, day by day, he gathered his disciples unto himself. First, there was Andrew, who went and got Peter, and then there was Philip that went and got Nathaniel. Now there's a story for you, Nathaniel. There he was. He had also gotten baptized by John, and he believed the Messiah was coming, and he was a devout man, a man who was not easily deceived. And the reason for that is he was always in the Word of God. He was in synagogue every Saturday, and he heard the Word of God. And he was not easily deceived. And one day, he told us that he was out under a fig tree. He had been fasting, he had been praying, he had been crying out to God, and he asked God, if only you would show me who the Messiah is, if you would show me a sign, dear God, I would follow him all the days of my life. And just as he was praying, Philip came up to him and he said, we found him, the Messiah. And he said, who is he? And he said, Jesus of Nazareth. As Nathaniel told us, he was saddened by that because he thought, Maybe God was going to show him, and now he heard Jesus of Nazareth. Well, he was not easily deceived because he was in the Word all the time, and there was no mention of Nazareth in the Old Testament, and so he did not think that Jesus was the Messiah. 
He did not know that Jesus was originally of Bethlehem, as the word had said, and, or he would have known. But he followed Philip back to appease him, and as he approached, Jesus looked up and said, Behold, an Israelite, in whom there is no guile. And he, puzzled, looked at Jesus and said, How do you know me? Jesus looked at him and said, I saw you when you were under the fig tree before that Philip called you. And he knew immediately then God had given him that sign that he had asked for. He said, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And from that day, he kept his vow and followed Jesus all the days of his life. Well, Jesus gathered each one of us unto himself in those early days and we followed him for three and a half years. We heard his words. We saw his miracles. It was an incredible time in our life. We never understood or knew what Jesus knew about Judas. He had said, I have, called, I have chosen 12 of you, and one of you is of your father, the devil. We never knew. Even the night of the cross, there he was, in our midst. And Jesus said, one of you who dips the bread in the sop is going to betray me. And we looked around our, our group. We looked at ourselves and said, Lord, is it I? We did not know it was Judas. When he went out into the darkness of the night after Satan had entered into him, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. We would know soon there at the Garden of Gethsemane when Judas came and betrayed him. That was a dark night, the darkest night in our lives. They took our Lord away. They beat him. They tried him in a mockery of a trial. They pulled out his beard. They spit upon him. And then he laid down his life for the sheep. That night, Judas hung himself, and there were 11 of us. And that night, we fled. Everyone left the Lord alone. He said, you will all leave me alone, but I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I crept back and stood by the cross, and he looked down upon me and said, Behold thy mother, and he turned Mary into my care. I stayed with her and cared for her in Jerusalem until she died. When she died, she said, I go to my Lord and my Savior. She knew she was a sinner, and she knew that he had died for her. And she was glad that God had used her as a vessel to bring the king of the world into the world. And then there were 11 of us. We chose after the ascension that we would make a replacement for Judas. It seemed right that there should be 12 of us. And so in the casting of lots, we chose Matthias. And Matthias joined our company. He had been a witness of the resurrection. But I think that Jesus chose the 12th apostle. You see, there was this man, Saul of Tarsus, and he became Paul the apostle. I remember when I heard of him coming to become a Christian, I was skeptical at first. I thought maybe a spy. He had done so much against the Christian faith in the early church, imprisoning individuals, trying to extract even blasphemous words against Christ. 
until I heard his testimony. There he was on the road to Damascus with papers to put Christians into prison. And they were in that company, and there he was on the road to Damascus, and a brilliant light, the Shekinah glory of God, came down upon him, and he was knocked off his horse, blinded. He knew he was in the presence of God, and then a voice from the Shekinah glory said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, he thought he was, he thought he was doing right for God. He thought God would be pleased with what he was doing, and now he realized all his righteousness was as filthy rags. He was on the wrong side of the fence. He knew he was speaking to God, and it was a fearful, fearful moment for him, and he said, Who art thou, Lord? And then the voice from the glory, the Shekinah glory, spoke to him and said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And that night, that day, Saul of Tarsus became Paul, the twelfth apostle. Well, the reason I said earlier that people are coming out to hear me now from faraway places here on my 80th birthday is they are all gone now. I am the last of the apostles. Each one died a martyr for Jesus' sake. No one was ever the same after the resurrection. No one feared death, for he holds the keys of death and the grave. First, there was James, my brother, about 10 years after the ascension of Christ. And then each of the apostles in turn, some by stoning, some by crucifixion. Peter was crucified upside down, some by the spear, some by the sword. Paul was beheaded. And so I am alone. But I want you to know that I am not alone, for the Lord is always with me. When he stood by, he st when Stephen was stoned, the first martyr, he looked up into heaven and he said, I see Jesus standing by the throne of God. Jesus is always seated by the throne of God. But there, when he was martyred, you saw him standing by the throne of God, ready to receive his servant into his kingdom. I said before how Saul heard the voice from the glory saying, why are you persecuting me? Jesus is always very intimately concerned about the lives of his Christians, of his children. And so I am never alone. The Spirit is with me, and I preach day in and day out as people come to hear me. But lately, they've been coming and asking me, John, you should sit down and write you should sit down and write your words, for you're not going to be here forever, John. I know I am ready to be sacrificed. Like Paul says, I am ready to be absent from the body and be present with the Lord. Whatever his plan is for my life, I do not know. Some say I may be imprisoned on Patmos. Whatever his will is, that is fine for me. But if I were to sit down and write, what would I say? What would I write? I must trust the Holy Spirit in this. When they come and ask me, the thoughts come easily to me. I can remember exactly what happened. They say, tell us, John, about 
how you felt when he came walking upon the water. And it comes to me as if it had happened just today. And I can tell them all about the feeding of the 5,000, how we separated them in groups of 50 and 100 so there were rows between them so that we could go between them to bring them food. And we looked at each other and wondered, how can this be because there are only five loaves and two little fish? How can we feed 5,000 men plus women and children? There were some 20,000 there that day. And then we came and he started handing out the baskets, one after another, and they were full of bread and full of fish. And we went through the crowds, and there was laughter, and there was eating, and there was joy. And it was a miracle. And then he came walking on the water that night. How did you feel, John, when he stopped the funeral procession there at Nain? And that poor widow was given back her dead son when he touched the funeral pyre. Tell us of his anger, John, when he made a whip and went into the temple and he drove the money changers out and upset the tables. Tell us of his gentleness, John, when the children came and sat upon his lap. Tell us of his power when he stood outside of Lazarus' tomb, having been dead four days, and he told us, roll back the stone. And James and I, we pushed on that as hard as we could, and it even took Peter to help us till we could roll that stone out of the way. And there he stood outside the tomb, and he said, Lazarus, come forth. And we heard a rustling in the tomb, and then we heard footsteps, and as he approached the opening of the tomb, you could see him squinting as he came out into our midst. It was an amazing miracle. He said, tell us of his love, John, when he laid down his life for the sheep, when he extended his arms and they put the nails in his hands. He said, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the power to lay it down and the power to take it up again. We did not understand what he meant when he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. We did not understand until he rose from the grave. And then we knew. And then our lives were changed forever. Lately, not only people are telling me to sit down and write, but it seems the Holy Spirit is encouraging me. No, not encouraging me. He is compelling me. He is constraining me to write. But what shall I write? I believe the Holy Spirit is telling me what to say, how I should write. I must trust him, for the Lord knew I could not do this on my own. I must write like Moses write, wrote, when he said, in the beginning, God, I will write, in the beginning was the Logos. Because the Greeks will understand that word Logos. They understand the word Logos because in their thinking, there was a power, a force throughout the whole universe, and that power brought everything into existence, and they called that power the Logos. I will introduce them to the true Logos, who is the Son of God. And my people Israel, they will understand that word logos for the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah and the word of the Lord came unto the prophets and the word of the Lord came unto Moses. And it is read every Sunday or every Saturday and Sabbath. 
And they will understand that word, logos, and I will introduce them to who the logos is, that he is the son of God. Yes, I must write as the Holy Spirit writes through me. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made by him, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not understood it, has not overpowered it. There came a man who was sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that all men might be saved. He himself was not that light, but he came only as a witness to the light, the true light that would light every man was coming into the world. And though the world did not, and though, the, though he came into the world, the world did not recognize him. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But to as many as received him, to them he gave the power, the authority to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent or human decision or husband's will, but born of God. And he became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, even as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now you can open your Bible to the word of God and the book of John as he opens up the beginning words inspired by the Spirit of God because God said to him, wait here for the paraclete, the comforter, the one who will come alongside of you, and he will guide you into all truth. He will bring you into all remembrance of the things that I have said and taught you. I love the book of John because it is a simple book. It is a book that a young person can sit down and read, and they can come to a knowledge of Christ. And I love the book of John because it is a deep book of great theology. And the most wise Christian can sit down and be unable to discover all that is there in the word of God because it is written by the spirit. It is written by the infinite, given to the finite. And so we come to his opening words, he says, and he says, in the beginning was the word. And so John takes us back in time far further than I took us back in time. He takes us to the very beginning of time. He takes us to the very beginning of time the whole concept of time. If you can imagine, if you will, standing on a cliff, and the cliff is the edge of time, all the way back in the very beginning of all time. And there you would be standing right to the edge of the cliff. No, you would put your toes right over the edge of the cliff. And if you could see at that moment, there was where time began and could somehow peer beyond time into the great abyss, the darkness beyond time, there is the Logos. Because in the beginning was the word. He already existed before time ever began. He created time. And John says in just a few words, there is the self-existent one. There is the eternal one, the, the, the transcendent one, the one that is above all things. In the beginning was the Logos. And then he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And now he introduces another concept of theology. He introduces us to the triune Godhead. He introduces us to the Trinity because you cannot be with God unless you are distinct, and you cannot be God unless you are the same. And John, in simple words, he's simple and matter-of-fact, just gives us such great theology in such few words. And then he says, all things were made by him, 
and without him nothing was made that has been made. And he says to the Greeks, you have all these different gods that are responsible for different parts of the universe, responsible for different areas of a creator, of creation, and there is only one God. He is the Logos, and he is responsible for all of it. There's not a God of the moon, and a God of the stars, and a God of the earth, and a God of the river, and a God of fertility. No, there is one God. All things were made by him, and without him nothing was made that has been made. And then he says, in him was life. And there, I have the image in my mind of the garden. And there he is forming something out of the ground, out of the earth. The potter is forming something out of the clay. And if you look, it looks like Adam. It looks like man. He is forming man out of the dust of the earth. And there are arms and there are legs and there's a body and there's a head. And he's forming muscles and sinews and and connective tissue, and there's a respiratory system, and there's a, there's a circulatory system, and there's a nervous system, and there's an optic nerve, and there's all these body parts, and they're all together, and he has formed a perfect man. But he is lifeless. And now what is the potter doing? He is breathing into this one, a living soul. And Adam comes alive, and he stands up, and he is formed perfectly in the image of God. In him was life. And the wellspring of life and the source of all life has breathed life into Adam. And Adam stands a perfect man. And then he says, and that life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness is not able to overcome it. And now he introduces another aspect of theology, the fall of man, for there is darkness now. There is a prince of power of darkness. There is an evil in this world. There is a fallen nature to man, for he has sinned in the garden. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And if man is to have any idea who God is, God must illuminate. He must bring that light to him. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot understand it, cannot overcome it. If you bring a candle into a darkened room and you light the candle, the darkness of the room will not be able to overcome that candle. If you keep our pastor from Qatar, and there's a Christian group in Qatar, the, the darkness will not be able to overcome that darkness, that light, because he said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In him was life, and the light was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And now we see a witness, a testimony. John is all about witness and testimony throughout the Gospel of John. You see the witness of Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. You see the witness of the Spirit and the Father there at the, at the, at the baptism of Christ. You see the witness of the 12 disciples and that they would be a witness of the resurrection. You see the witness of Moses and Elijah there on the Mount of Transfiguration. Over and over again, you see the witness. And here we see the witness of John the Baptist, the last prophet of God of the Old Testament. There came a man who was sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness that all men might believe. He himself was not that light. 
He came only as a witness to the light, the true light that would light every man was coming into the world. And how is it that he lights every man? Some to judgment and some to life eternal. But he lights every man. Paul talks about that in Romans 1. Everyone is responsible for what they have an understanding of. And God has revealed himself to every man. And he will either be judged by that light one day or he will come to that light now. Some flee from the light because their deeds are evil and some come to the light to know the Lord. But when is it necessary to witness to light? If you think about it, if we came into this room today and the lights were all off, maybe electricity went off because there was a power problem and in the middle of this conversation, the mic would go back on and the lights would go back on, everybody would know the lights came back on unless you were blind. If you were blind, if you brought a blind person with you, you might have to lean over and witness to them. You might have to uh, mention to them, the lights just came back on. And as blind people sometimes say in a circumstance like that, oh, I see now. They really understand now. Well, John the Baptist, he was a witness to the light because the world was blind. They were spiritually blind they were depraved, and so John speaks of total depravity here. I like the way that Swindoll talks about total depravity sometimes. He says, it's not that we are as bad as we could be, it's just that we are bad throughout. If, we, if depravity was blue, he says, and you cut the brain open to look at the thoughts of the mind, it would all be blue. There wouldn't be anything white there. If you cut open the heart, it would be all blue throughout. I have in your outline here, and I know I've stayed away from the outline pretty much. Um, total depravity there. I talk about the fact that Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So he is a witness to a blind world. And then he says in the scriptures there, he says, He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him. Can you imagine the creator of the world comes into the world, and the world does not recognize him, does not want him? He comes unto his own, the nation of Israel, and they should have known. He had given them the word of God. He's the living word of God. They should have known he would be born in Bethlehem. They should have known his hands and feet would be pierced. Isaiah said that. He should have known that, that one would betray him. My own familiar friend has lifted up his heel against me. They should have known the Messiah would come and he would lay down his life for the sheep. But they did not. They refused. Yet it says, yet to all who received him, to them who believed in his name, to them he gave the authority, the power to become children of God. And it makes me think of 2 Samuel there where David looks for one to honor looks for one to honor Jonathan, the work of Jonathan, the son of Saul, who, was, um, in, who had been the king, and now David is the king, and he finds the crippled Mephibosheth, and he brings him into the kingdom, and this crippled son of Jonathan, he, he could have thought, maybe they're going to kill me because I would be in the line of Saul, and maybe David somehow sees me as a threat, and David said, I am adopting you into my family. Come and sit at my table, 
for the rest of your life you will eat at my table and all your life you will be provided for. And it was not for anything that Mephibosheth had done, but because of the work of the son of Saul, Jonathan. He wanted to honor Jonathan. And isn't that a parallel of our lives? Adopted into the family of God because of the work of the son. Because God wants to honor his son. And he does so by adopting us into the family of God. Well, he says in his word here, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God. You can't come into the family of God because your grandfather was a Christian pastor and your father was a deacon in the church and now you're automatically going to be in it. That's not going to happen. Not born of natural descent, nor a human decision. You can't go take a class on comparative religions and go find God. I'm going to go find God. First of all, God isn't lost. You're the one that's lost, and you can't find him from your perspective. You're you're blind. You're depraved. You have no hope except he finds you. And the good shepherd comes to seek and to save that which was lost. Not... The will of man, not husband's will. You can't raise your kids in a Christian home and expect that they will automatically become Christian. No, they must be born of God. It takes the work of the Spirit of God. He said to Nicodemus, you must be born from above. He said, what? You are the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things. Salvation is of the Lord. That's what Jonah had said in the belly of the, of the whale, the, the great fish. And Nicodemus should have known that. And then after having talked about the self-existence of God and the deity of Christ and the triune Godhead and the depravity of man and the grace of God, now he talks about the incarnation. He says, and he became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. And pastor talks so much about the birth of a baby and what a baby announcement that would be. When my son Daniel was born, I never said, and he became flesh and now dwells among us. Now you'd never think of that. And yet, that's how you would have to talk about the one who is the Son of God, who has existed before time began, who is the Logos. And John says, and we beheld his glory. Some of the commentators say that he's speaking specifically of the Mount of Transfiguration. There where Peter, James, and John went up and saw the glory of Christ, for he showed his glory. It just burst through him. There was the metamorphosis, the transformation where his humanity was now superseded by his glory, and they got a glimpse of the glory of God there as he spoke to Moses and Elijah on the mountain, and certainly that was an incredible experience. He's He glowed like the sun. It said his clothes were white like snow, whiter than any fuller could ever bleach them. A fuller was one who bleached raiment clothes, and you brought your stained white garment, and the fuller got it white again, brighter than any fuller could ever bleach them. He was so brilliant. He came down off that mountain, and they had seen his glory. But I think John is speaking of the glory in all the miracles that he saw. For throughout the book of 
John, the rest of the book of John, he speaks of seven miraculous signs, each that point beyond themselves, each that point to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And in each one, they reveal an aspect of his glory. When he turned the water into wine there at, at the, uh, in John chapter 2, it says in verse 11, this, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Canaan Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Each aspect, different aspects. John could have chosen so much. He saw so many miracles. He said if all the things were written down that could be written down regarding the words of Christ and the works of Christ, I suppose not all the books of the world could hold those words. And yet he chose only seven, seven miraculous signs. And as you enter into the book of John and read the different aspects of the glory of Christ, you see them in these seven miraculous signs that he has chosen. And so I want to finish this message today as we look at John chapter 9, and I would entitle this for Thanksgiving, A Thankful Man, for there we see Jesus coming along. And as he went along, it says in verse 9, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And in this, I want you to see him move from physical blindness to physical sight, from spiritual blindness to spiritual sight. And there, isn't this the way we are with God so many times? We say, is it door number one or door number two, God? You have two choices. Did he sin at when he was in the womb somehow, or did his parents sin? Is that the, the reason why he is blind? That was the word of the day. That was the experience that anyone born with a congenital defect, it was felt that it was either the parents' fault or their fault in the womb somehow that they could sin. And Jesus, like so often God does, he says, it's not door number one or door number two. You know, Israel is coming to the Red Sea, and they go, should we go left? Should we go right? Should we fight our way back through? And God says, just go through the Red Sea. Follow me. <laughs> A way that they had not even expected. Well, he says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. And so we're going to see the glory of God in this miraculous sign because the light of the world has come into the world and though the, the, the darkness wants to overcome it, and we see that in the Pharisees and how they want to overcome this miracle and somehow discredit it, they could not overcome this miracle, not to this one who he is calling to himself. And so he says, while in verse 5, while I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with a saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. I can't help but think of creation of Adam in the garden. And there he is forming Adam out of the dust of the earth and now he stops. There is a marred vessel in front of him, one that has a crack, one that can't see. And what does a potter do with a cracked vessel? He mixes some mud and he puts it in the eyes and he is ready to bring him back to full sight. And so he does that. And he then sends him to the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. The sent one is sending one to the pool named sent. And he came home seen. He went and washed and he came home seen. And now he goes to his home. And can you see him running into his parents' house? 
and saying, I can see you. I can see everything. The world is beautiful. And his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging, and he asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him, but he himself insisted, I am the man. Then how were your eyes open, they demanded. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. I want you to notice this first step in his spiritual eyesight. He sees this one as a man they called Jesus. And he put it on my eyes, and he told me to go to Siloam and wash, and I went and washed, and then I could see him. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. See, he is alone. Jesus has moved on. But Jesus will return. But now he is being tested. They brought him to the Pharisees. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. And the, now the day on which Jesus made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him, how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes. The man replied, I wash and now I see. And now the Pharisees want to discredit this one. Some of the Pharisees says, this man is not from God. He does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? And they were divided. See Nicodemus there? We know you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do the miraculous signs you are doing unless God is with him. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. And now he moves from Jesus is a man to Jesus is a prophet. A prophet cannot lie. A prophet is one you need to follow. A prophet is one that you need to listen to. And now he sees him as a prophet. His spiritual eyesight is coming into focus. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. They're trying to discredit this one. See, the darkness has not overcome it. They're trying to overcome it. They're trying to discredit the miracle is this your son? They asked three questions. Was he born blind, and how is it that he can now see? Well, the parents are fearful of being put out of the synagogue because they have already determined that if someone says Jesus is the Christ, they will be put out of the synagogue, and they don't want to be unsynagogued. You see, to be unsynagogued was a very serious thing. You could not now relate to the rest of the Jewish nation, and certainly you wouldn't be relating to the Romans, and so you were really, really excommunicated. And if you died unsynagogued, you were most likely going to hell. You were going to be put in a grave, covered up, and there was not going to be a service for you because you were ostracized. You were not of the ones that were synagogued. So his parents said this. They, they said, we know he's our son. We know he was born blind, but... They said, ask him yourself how this happened and who it is that opened his eyes because they were afraid. A second time they summoned the man and they said, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. Now his spiritual eyesight is opening more. He's starting to see how the darkness is trying to overcome the light. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind and now I can see. Pretty simple here. Why can't you see what I can see he answers, they said, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He said, I have told you already and you do not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples also? And now he moves up another notch in his spiritual eyesight because he wants to follow this one. If he can find him again, he will follow him as his disciple. They hurled insults at him. You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. Now that is remarkable, the man said. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. And this is true. He knew 
he knew probably from young up his chances of ever seeing were zero. No one had opened the eyes of a blind man ever in the history of time. And now he was seeing, and he knew this one is a prophet. This one he must follow. This one he will listen to. Well, they put him out of the synagogue. How dare you lecture us? And there they throw it to him. You were steeped in sin at birth. Must have been you or your parents. Your parents, we didn't un-synagogue. We're un-synagogue you. You must have been the one then that caused your blindness. Well, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? The words every Jew would understand from Daniel. This one who was brought into the presence of the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man, who was given all authority and power, and every nation and tongue will worship him. And he says, Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. He is ready to attach his faith to whoever this prophet of God, who cannot lie, tells him. He is ready to follow the Son of Man, whoever he is. And Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you, and he worshiped him. And I would conclude this day with the thought that John, in his gospel and in the book of Revelation, is very careful to point out to us that only God is to be worshiped. For in the book of the Revelation, when he tries to worship the angel and falls down before the angel, the angel says to him, do not worship me, for I am a fellow servant. Worship God only. Go back to John 9 and look at what, John, what Jesus does when this man worships him. He accepts the worship of God because it is his due, because he is God. Well, lessons for our lives, and we'll be done here. John, the last of the apostles, wrote the Gospel of John. First, second, and third John in the book of the Revelation, his words are true, for Christ told the apostles that he would send the Holy Spirit and he would bring them into all remembrance of the things that he had said and taught. And though he wrote it 60 years after he had been with Christ, it was as fresh as the day it happened in John's, in John's memory. If you were the last apostle living, what would you have written? John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote of the glory of Christ as seen in the seven miraculous signs and powerful words of Christ, all pointing to the revelation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and, and the men might believe unto salvation and life. The opening words of John's gospel are simple, yet filled with powerful statements of theological depth, demonstrating the character of God, the depravity of man, the grace of God, and the deity of Christ. Simple, straightforward, and yet powerful. The blind man received both his physical eyesight, a miracle never done before, and ultimately his spiritual eyesight. He moved from an understanding of Jesus as a man, a prophet, one to follow his disciple, to the anointed son of God, thrown out of the synagogue by the spiritually blind leaders of Israel. He depicts one whom the Lord characterizes in John chapter 4, sorry about the typo, who worships in spirit and in truth. He is living proof that the light of the world shines in the darkness, and the darkness was not able to overcome it. May God give us spiritual eyesight to always trust God's word and be ever thankful to the light of the world. May we worship him in spirit and truth. If we do, every day will be a day of thanksgiving. I want to finish with a poem I wrote from a tree stand in Iowa three weeks ago. <laughs> so you can put up with one last thing, and I call it The Blind Man. I wrote a poem a long time ago about blind man, and well, I couldn't find it, and I just wrote a new one. I sat outside the synagogue from dawn till end of day. The people, they would stop and stare. Sometimes I'd hear them say, 
This poor soul has no hope in life. His fate is sealed and full of strife, sin of his parents or of he, for since his birth he cannot see. Once long ago, when just a boy, I asked my parents, seeking joy, could anyone found just like me receive his sight again and see? They did not know, and so we went to see the rabbi in his tent. He stopped and thought and then did say, come back and visit in three days. And so again we came and saw the answer that my question wrought. He sadly put his hand in mine and said, no one has cured the blind. And then one day I heard a man that said my blindness was a plan that God had made to tell his story and through this would reveal his glory. He made some mud upon the ground, and with it made a little mound. He placed some on each eye, and then told me, go wash and see again. And so I went, his word so sure, and then I found he was the cure. My eyes did see. I was so blessed. And then I found there was a test. Who was this one who rescued me from my dark plate so I could see? I did not know, but I was sure. He came from God, for he did cure. My eyes did see never before. Had one done this, there must be more, at least a prophet. For this I know, I'll follow him where he does go. And then he came and found me there. The test was over. How did I fare? Do you believe the Son of Man? For he has come, the Father's plan. I answered, who, and I will follow. Point to the one, and I'll believe. The gift of sight was a great blessing, but greater still would I receive. He told me, I have seen and I have spoken to the Son of Man just now, so on my knees I fell to worship. Before the Son I knelt to bow. That day my eyes were opened to a new and glorious sight, the Son of God had to me spoken, and I received eternal life. And so today I say to all who walk in darkness, as did I, come to this light of life eternal. Come worship him and hear my cry. He is the one the Father sent to open blind eyes on his way. Oh, won't you see? For life eternal hangs in the balance. Be saved today. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you at this time and we just thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that through the pen of John, your Holy Spirit has opened to us a great blessing, a great story of Christ that we would come to know him for him to know or write is life eternal. He said, these things have I written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, you might have life in his name. Help us, Lord, to take that to heart. Help us to share the gospel with whoever comes along our way, just as Jesus did to this blind man on his glorious day. For it's in Christ we ask. Amen. And you are dismissed.